Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we, want, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Rachel. Well, what we are doing as a church in this season is we have decided to um, return to some of our core values, some of our uh, kind of driving principles, our overarching mission and vision, and take a season to ask ourselves the question, who do we want to be as a church? Last week, we said that we want to be a storied church, meaning that we want to be a group of people that are self-consciously living into this bigger thing that God is doing in the world of making all things new in Jesus. And at the center of that story is a story of grace. And so this is kind of part two of that. We want to also be a grace-centered church. Now, you might know this story. Vince Lombardi it was this you know, famous uh, football coach for the Green Bay Packers 50 or so years ago. When, you know, pe people have said he's, he's maybe one of the best legendary coaches of all time. And as the story goes, at the beginning of every fall practice, at the beginning of every fall season, he would get the team together and hold up a football and say to the team, gentlemen, this is a football. And he did that not because he thought that in the offseason they had forgotten what that thing was, although that could have been true, but uh, he did it because it was his way of saying, we have to return to what is most basic. If we lose focus on what the main thing is, it doesn't matter how hard we practice, how busy we get, we'll miss, we'll miss what the main thing is. We've got to go back to the fundamentals. We've got to go back to the basic things. So as a church, likewise, what we're going to do today is, is go back to what is most basic. What is the most core bedrock foundational reality for who we are and who we want to be as a church, you really could summarize it really in one word, and it's grace. We want to be a church where everything that we do flows from and is traceable back to the reality of grace, which is at the center of the story of the universe. And so, to that end, I want to try to answer two questions this morning. I want to try to answer what is grace, what do we mean by that, and what does it do? What is grace, what does it do? So first, what is grace? What, what do we mean by that word? Well, um, to set that up, uh, you might be familiar with the cultural phenomenon called Florida Man, 
which is uh, this thing where in Florida there seems to be this proliferation of bizarre news headlines. If you just Google Florida man, you know, the, any, any news article coming out of Florida that begins with Florida man and then whatever the Florida man did is going to be strange and bizarre. And so I, I Googled a few of these, and I'm going to share a few of these with you. These are, these are the ones that I found that um, I thought were interesting, but also the most church appropriate. So... Here's one news title. This is an actual news headline. Florida man charged with assault with a deadly weapon after throwing alligator through Wendy's drive-through window. Um, here's another one. Florida man disguised in bull costume tries to burn down house with spaghetti sauce. <laughs> Florida man used ninja sword in attack over missing socks. I did not invent these. These are, these are real. We have some Florida men in the house, so maybe, I don't know. Maybe you could explain it to us. But The Daily Show, they did a video about this phenomenon. There's about a seven-minute or so video you can find online. It's, it's, it's hilarious. One of their field correspondents, uh, Desi Lytic, goes down to Florida to try to get to the bottom of why is everything so crazy in Florida. She asked this question, what makes a man Florida man? And it's this hilarious video, you, you got to see it, but at the end of the video, she discovers what's, what she thinks is behind this phenomenon, that there was this landmark law called the Sunshine Act of 1991, that what this law did was it gave reporters access to government documents in a new way. So, so any, any reporter now has access to pol you know, police records and, and police information. And so it was kind of this light bulb moment for her where she was realizing it's not that Florida is just crazier. It's that it's th the crazy is because of this law, it's more visible. And so this whole, you know, funny little seven-minute-long video has been zooming in on the state of Florida with all these crazy headlines, but then the, it, there's, it starts to zoom out, and you start to see the United States as a whole, and there's all these other crazy headlines all over the place, like um, Kentucky man on lawnmower arrested for drunk driving, Iowa man shot by his own dog, and she, she, has, this, she has this moment, and here's her conclusion to this whole bit. Here's how she concludes, quote, and while Florida will always be America's petri dish of bizarre behavior, the truth is there's a little Florida man in all of us. Now, here's why I'm talking about that. Because I think what that video is doing is they're being, you know, they're silly, it's being playful, but they're, they're in a playful way articulating what Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 is talking about. Because the first three verses of this passage are getting at this reality that there's a, there's a Florida man in all of us. There's, there's something about us that is bizarre and twisted and, and jacked up in such a way where we are all not just capable of crazy stuff, we do crazy stuff and therefore we're all culpable. In fact, I'm not gonna get into the weeds of this because it's a lot, but let me just read it to you again. Listen to the language of this passage as it describes us. It says, verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
Now, that's a lot, I know. That's intense. It's confusing. There's a lot of language there. But I just want you to see, this is just saying what The Daily Show is saying, that there's something wrong with us. And not just us, but as it says at the end, the rest of mankind. This is, this is kind of like if, if the news crew were to show up into your life and to have full access to your thoughts and to your heart and to your history and everything about you, what would the, I mean, the headlines would be just as crazy. Memphis man, Memphis woman yells at children. Memphis man, Memphis woman consumed with envy and jealousy. Memphis man, Memphis woman uh, eaten up with, with pettiness and selfishness. Uh, ignores the poor and hoards all their money. Uh, addicted to pornography. Violent, ab you know, abusive, whatever. On and on this list could go. And here's the point. Grace will make no sense to you. Christianity will make no sense to you unless you're willing to come to terms with this first reality that something's wrong with us. In fact, something's more severely wrong with us than we can ever imagine. So how does God relate to people like us then? If the Bible is true, and if, there, if the Daily Show is true, and there is something bizarrely messed up with all of us, then how does God relate to us? Does he respond in judgment and with condemnation and with stern lectures to get it together? Look at what the passage says, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And then jump down to verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us. Do you see the, uh, the, the language of abundance there? He said rich in mercy. He's crazy wealthy with mercy. He says great love, the immeasurable riches of his grace. This is talking about grace that is over the top. This is talking about grace that is gratuitous, that he lavishes on people, like, like a, a tidal wave of unending grace, which raises the question, okay, what, but what is it? What is that thing? That's what it is. It's God's disposition to move towards people that are at their core rebellious, but to move towards them from, with a disposition of kindness and forgiveness and, and mercy. You know, the old definition is that grace is, you know, undeserved favor. It, it's, it's to receive something that you, don't, you didn't deserve, you didn't ask for, and even when you receive it, you may not even appreciate. But that's what grace is, unending, immeasurable riches of God's kindness towards the people that are the least deserving. Now, if that's what it is, second question, what does it do? That's nice, that's a fun thought, but what does that do? And here's where... Uh, it, we, we, you know, again, we could take a long time because there's grace really, it changes everything. That if the reality of grace does get into your bone marrow, it changes the way that you relate to yourself. It changes the way that you relate to your family. It changes the way that you relate to your work, to your neighborhood, to race, to poverty, to the, it changes the way that you relate to everything. And so I, I only want to draw out two realities of what grace does. That if you allow yourself to experience the tidal wave of grace, it'll do two things. It will create a unique identity. 
and it will create a unique culture. And we'll look at these one at a time. How does it create a unique identity? Uh, a number of years ago, this is pre-COVID, my wife and I went to Chicago for uh, a fun little anniversary trip, and we saw Hamilton, which is the greatest piece of art I've ever seen in my life. And I think I can risk a spoiler alert on this, because it was a story that took place in the 1700s. So, um, spoiler alert coming, but for the, for the three of you that are unfamiliar with the basic story, it's a story about Alexander Hamilton and his... Uh, his quest for his own legacy, his, his insatiable appetite for his name to be remembered. And so he's just, you know, there's a million things he hasn't done, but just you wait and he's going and going and going. And his wife, Eliza, is always looking at him and saying, okay, well, what, what is going to be enough? Just take a break. Uh, she says, you know, you'll never be satisfied. She's just constantly telling him, chill, slow down. Like, what are you doing? And he just goes and he goes and he goes and he goes and he goes. And as the story unfolds, he explodes his life. His, his son gets killed through advice that he gave, which was really bad. He blows up his uh, career and he blows up his marriage with an illicit affair. He's publicly humiliated. He's just like a total failure. His whole world is collapsed in on itself. And then comes this point in the musical, in the midst of the darkness, in the lowest point where uh, the song, It's Quiet Uptown, comes on. And the Hamiltons move uptown and learn to live with the unimaginable. And they are up there and they're just grieving and they're processing the fact that their lives are just wreckage. And there's this moment where both of them are on stage and Hamilton looks at his wife, Eliza, and he says to her this, I don't pretend to know the challenges we're facing. I know there's no replacing what we lost and you need time. And he's, he has wrecked her life, he's wrecked his life, they're just, they're decimated. And in this kind of dark moment, the narrator comes on and sings, uh, there are moments that the words don't reach. There's a grace too powerful to name. And she reaches over and she grabs his hand and he starts weeping, he's breaking down and the ensemble around them sings over them, forgiveness. Can you imagine? They sing forgiveness. And I'm sitting there and I'm just, you know, a wreck in my own uh, seat. And I'm looking around the auditorium and everyone's wiping their face. Everyone's just undone by this moment in this theater. Now, why? why? What was it about that moment that just, just undid us? Because in that moment, we got to just taste a, just a sample of grace. Here's this woman who, whose life has been blown up because of the idiocy of this man, and she had every right to walk away. She had every right to reject him, and she doesn't. And she moves towards him with kindness and with forgiveness. Can you imagine? And we're all just undone in the theater but from a taste of it. What would happen to you if you didn't just get a taste of God's grace, but you allowed yourself to get swept away in the tidal wave of the immeasurable riches of God's grace? It would, as verse 5 puts it, make you alive. You would literally be brought from death to life. And you think, okay, Matt, but what about that dark thing in my life that nobody knows about? Grace is bigger than that too. 
your sin, your shame, your secrets. Nothing can stop grace. God's more powerful than we are. And you think, okay, but what about someone like me? I come to church, I've tasted grace, I've experienced it, but I take advantage of it. I don't really care about it as much as I think I should, and I kind of keep screwing up over and over and over and over, and here's the, here's the good news. Grace is bigger than that, too. God keeps giving grace. That's why the Bible keeps saying he is rich in it. He, he's, he's not poor in grace. He's not giving grace begrudgingly, reluctantly. He's freely, gratuitously, lavishly giving it away to the people that don't deserve it. And did you notice, this is why God puts forward Jesus as the one who saves us. All throughout this passage, if you noticed it, this whole passage keeps connecting our being freed, our being saved in Jesus. He's the kind of the, the, the central thing that all this whole passage is orbiting around. Look at verse 5. It says, God made us alive together with Christ. Verse 6, he raised us up with him and seated us with him. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness, of the riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Here's the point. God saves sinners by connecting them to the Savior so that whatever is true of Jesus is now true of you and me. When you get connected to Jesus by faith, what is true of Jesus becomes true of you. Jesus died and rose to new life. Well, guess what? Now we have died and rise to new life. Jesus has been accepted by God, so we become accepted by God, which means we have an identity now that is rooted in and founded upon grace. It's a gift given to us, as this passage suggests. Here's what's different from every other instinct that we have as people. Most people form identities. This is both people in religious circles and non-religious circles form an identity by what you do. We think you are what you do. And so my beliefs, my instincts, my accomplishments, my values, who I vote for, all of that forms together and it says this is who I am. The problem with that is that if your identity is rooted in what you do, it only has the possibility to send you in one of two directions. It will either send you towards self-loathing or self-righteousness. Because you have these standards, you have these values, and if you don't live up to your standards, if you don't live up to your values of whatever that is, whatever it means for you to be a good person, then you feel shame, you feel guilt, you beat yourself up, oh, I'm so, I did it again, I'm such a failure, self-loathing. If you live up to your standards, you live up to your values, and that kind of makes you feel good about yourself. You don't have shame or, or guilt, you feel pride. In fact, you kind of look down your nose on other people that can't get it together like you can. Self-righteousness. And you go back and forth, sometimes in different seasons, sometimes you oscillate back and forth in the same day. The point is there's no stability, though. There's no security, though, because it's founded on you. An identity that is rooted in self only leads to self-loathing or self-righteousness. But if you have an identity that is not achieved but is received, you have an identity that's not grounded on you anymore. At the core of who you are as a Christian is that you are someone who is saved by grace, which does two things to you. On the one hand, 
it tells your soul that you needed grace to begin with, which makes you humble. It, it removes any resources that you thought you had to put yourself over and above other people. You actually become a humble person. And at the same time, if you are someone who has received grace, that gives you confidence. You are loved and cherished by the Lord of the universe. Humility, confidence, in the same psyche. That's a completely unique identity that only the gospel of grace can give you. So here's the, here's this, here's the next question, though. What if you have a group of people whose identity was all formed and shaped primarily not by what they do, but by grace? What kind of culture would that create? What kind of environment would that create if you had a group of people that was just soaked and saturated in grace? Well, that's the last thing I want to look at with you. Grace doesn't just create a unique identity. Grace also creates a unique culture. And here's how I want to get at this. Um, maybe you've seen the show Parts Unknown by Anthony Bourdain. Uh, Anthony Bourdain, uh, you know, tragically took his life a number of years ago, but uh, he was a, uh, you know, he would tour around and do this show where he would eat at all of these exotic, like just off the beaten path places and eat all of this amazing food. And he was just a professional eater. And there's one episode where he's in Charleston, South Carolina, and he is hanging out with this big foodie guy, this chef there named Sean Brock. And they're at the bar having drinks and enjoying some food and they're, they're talking and they realize just organically in this conversation that Anthony Bourdain has never been to Waffle House before. And Sean Brock is, like, astounded by this. Like, can't understand why in the... How have you never been to Waffle House before? And so he says, stop everything. We're going there right now. So Sean Brock leads him to... They go to Waffle House. So here are these two, like, mega foodie guys at the counter with a camera crew spontaneously at Waffle House. And, you know, Anthony Bourdain's looking at the menu. He's looking at the hash browns. And he's like, I don't even know what's going on with this whole section. And uh, Sean Brock says, don't worry. I have devised... Uh, the, the menu for tonight. And so here's what he does. He orders first a um, pecan waffle for them to split. They slather that, you know, fake butter, all, yellow stuff all over it. They drench it in the syrup, and Anthony Bourdain tries it, and his eyes, like, roll back in his head. He's like, this is amazing. Then they bring out a patty melt for them to split, just taking it to the face. Then they bring out a um, green salad with Thousand Island dressing. Then he orders some pork chops and a T-bone steak for them to split. Finally, they bring out some fried eggs and hash browns. And at the end of this feast, this Waffle House feast, here is Anthony Bourdain's narration, his monologue that comes on over the end of this whole episode. Quote, this is, his, you know, this is his assessment of Waffle House. Quote, it is indeed marvelous. An irony-free zone where everything is beautiful and nothing hurts. Where everybody, regardless of race, creed, color, or degree of inebriation, is welcomed. Its warm yellow glow, a beacon of hope and salvation, inviting the hungry, the lost, the seriously hammered all across the South to come inside, a place of safety and nourishment. It never closes. It is always, always faithful, always there for you. You think, I have never experienced that at Waffle House. 
But I love that description because he paints this beautiful picture of a culture that is warm and inviting and nourishing and is always faithful, always there for you. And I think, man, that is a perfect description of what the church of Jesus is and should be. A place that if it is so soaked and saturated in grace, it should be a place that says everybody is welcome. It does not matter how you showed up, what you believe, what you look like, what you're on, what you have done this morning, what you did last night. You are welcome because this is a place of grace. And if Redeemer, if this church is going to be a place where grace is at the center of it, this would mean that this would be a place where you would feel okay to not be okay a place where you would feel free to say, okay, I can show up and I don't have to perform. I don't have to button up. I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to be the right kind of person. I, don't, I, I, don't, I can show up just as I actually am, which means you can also show up with your doubts and your questions, knowing that nobody in here has it all figured out. Nobody in here has it all put together. If it's a place of grace, then it would be a place that would be warm, winsome, hospitable, nourishing, and if this would be a place of grace, it would be a place that's constantly orbiting back around to Jesus, a place where we're constantly lifting up our gracious Savior as more beautiful and more believable than we thought him to be, which is one of the reasons why week after week we keep coming to the table, keep wanting to commune with someone who keeps spreading a table, inviting us to come to him, people like us that have blown it a thousand times just this past week alone. So, we want to be a grace-centered church because we've tasted and we've seen that the Lord is good and his grace is unending for people like us. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you are indeed rich in mercy, gracious towards people that don't deserve it. I pray that you would help us not just to believe it, ourselves, but to believe it for the sake of other people in here, to believe it as a church body, that this would be a place that, that smells like, that just exudes the very grace of God given to us in Jesus, a place that is warm and kind and gracious. Father, help us to be transformed as we taste and see that you are indeed good. Thank you that you love us.